Good evening. Um, I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs. The reviewer Jack Hitt had this to say about Paul Ray's new book, Exiles in Eden, and I quote, part expedition, part anthropology, Reyes journeys into the dark swamp of the Sunshine State's housing market. With a great eye for detail and characters, nonfiction has found, and, and characters, excuse me, nonfiction has found its Carl Hyacin, end of quote. Um, Paul provides a, a new perspective on the ho housing foreclosure crisis, an up-close and personal look at the real people who are being affected, who are suffering by this, um, by this particular aspect of the recession. He found his subjects while working for his father's um, small company in Tampa, trashing out foreclosed properties, and, and I'm sure he's going to explain that in greater detail. And he takes us um, far from, the, from Wall Street and the machinations of Wall Street to the side streets of poor neighborhoods where the true costs of the national housing crisis can be seen. Um, Paul is a graduate of Goucher College, so we welcome him back to Baltimore and back to the Pratt. Um, he is the former editor-at-large of the Oxford American, and he's a contributing editor to the Virginia Quarterly Review. His writing has also appeared in Harper's, The New York Times, Slate, and numerous other publications. He received a literature fellowship this year from the National Endowment for the Arts, so that's a great accomplishment. And we are delighted to welcome you, Paul, to the Pratt Library. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Uh, hello to my fellow Goucher Gophers who are in the audience. <laughs> Although I'm the only one from the class of 93, but that's fine. I'm, I'll represent. Uh, as was explained, this book grew out of an experience, uh, out of a job that I had when, before writing started to pay. I, after graduating from Goucher, I went to uh, the University of Florida to study fiction and graduated in 98 with a degree in fiction. And of course, uh, with an MFA in fiction, you're not very employable, and I had trouble finding work. Uh, so I moved home and lived with my father for a bit. And to earn my keep, I joined him in his job at the time, which was to clean out and fix up foreclosures. This was in Tampa, Florida. I knew what he did. I just didn't know very many details about it. Uh, and being a, a writer of fiction and a student of character, I realized, walking into my first foreclosure, that I uh, walked into a, a pretty profound experience in that all around me in this home, in this stuff that these people left behind, I found all the raw material for very intense character studies. The trick was to amass what I could among the uh, papers and x-rays and utility bills, uh, letters from the sheriff, that sort of thing, to figure out who these people were and how they lost their home. Of course, in 1998, this wasn't, uh, you know, foreclosures were just a sliver of the real estate market, and I thought I'd approach it as a fiction writer. I thought maybe I'd work it into a novel or something. Uh, so I kept the idea in my back pocket for a while. And 10 years later, as it became front page news, I realized I had an opportunity to tell this story from the ground up as opposed to from the top down. And so I returned home uh, in 2008, the spring of 2008, where this begins 
to go back to work for my father and, uh, and look at the crisis up close. So that's where we'll begin. When I ask my father what he remembers about the first houses he trashed out, a phrase we use to describe the process of entering a home that has been foreclosed upon by the bank and which the bank would like to sell, and hauling all of what the dispossessed owner has left behind to the nearest dump, then returning to clean the place by spraying every corner and wiping every inch of glass, deleting every fingerprint, scrubbing the boot marks off the linoleum, bleaching the cruddy toilets, sweeping up the hair and sand and dust, steaming the stains out of the carpet, or, if the carpet is unsalvageably rancid, tearing it out, and eventually, thereby, erasing all traces of whoever lived there, dispensing with both their physical presence and the ugly aura of eviction, he says he doesn't remember much. It was too many years ago, for one thing, well before I started working for him. And since then, he has trashed out so much bizarre flotsam under such strange circumstances that his memories of those first few houses have faded. None of the stories my father shares about this work, and certainly none that I can tell, are uplifting. Sure, there are comedies and tragicomedies, and some plots are shot through with an absurdity that seems indigenous to Florida, where this began for us. But overall, the circumstances remain bleakly fixed. Every foreclosed house, empty or not, clean or crumbling, feels lost, no matter the neighborhood or amenities, no matter the waterfront view. Some houses are left spotless, others in a wretched degradation, and the varieties are shared among the rich and poor, the elderly and upwardly mobile. Some houses are lost before ever being lived in. Others, abandoned long ago, provide shelter for addicts, bums, whores, snakes, strays, and low fungal kingdoms that fan out in the darkness, kick-started maybe by a cat turd or bowl of leftovers. The junk left behind has fascinated me since I began working foreclosures with my father years ago, during holidays or between jobs, boomeranging between Tampa and wherever I ended up next, tagging along with his regular crew, a pair of Puerto Rican laborers who start the day at six and call it at three. I have always been the crew's weak link, both because I flinch in places that after months of abandonment have become so gloriously foul, and because I can't help but read a narrative in what has been discarded, an impulse that evolved into a purpose, just as the trash out itself evolved from a job that paid when writing didn't into a way of examining a national crisis up close. So I've picked and gleaned, sweating nearly every item we've thrown away, creeping among the gadgets and notes and utility bills and photographs in order to decipher who lived there and how they lost it, a life, a life partially revealed by stuff marinating in a fetid stillness. It is a guilt-ridden literary forensics, because to confront the junk is to confront the individuality being purged from a place. My father was never all that interested in this particular angle. He likes to keep things simple. He gets an address. The crew goes to work. Now and then I join them, but I've never been much good at keeping up. Foreclosures are our family business, but a line of work my father arrived at after some professional meandering. Jose Miguel Reyes met and married my mother, Franny Picon Blanco, in Philadelphia in 1969. He was 22, a Cuban refugee who'd spent his teenage years in the camps of Miami and who, after moving north, found work running errands for the draftsmen at United Engineers. My mother, a Colombian girl, had arrived in time to attend high school in the States and was diligent enough to grind her way toward a diploma while still getting her American bearings. Math was easy, she says. Othello, not so much. After marriage and having me, my parents etched a constellation of hometowns up and down the East Coast, landing in Florida in 1984. After starting his own small construction company and losing it, and after a relatively diplomatic divorce from my mother and a brief midlife crisis, my father married again, 
to a real estate agent this time. They began dabbling in houses, repairing them, restoring the historic ones, flipping most for a modest profit. His second wife, Mena, had been selling foreclosures for a while. Now, when it came time to clean a foreclosure out and fix it up, a job hardly anyone else wanted, my father was more than willing. This turned out to be steady, predictable work, tucked in the margins of an otherwise healthy housing market. In the early 1990s, when my father and Mena began working together, foreclosures were, for the most part, quiet aberrations in real estate, the result of extremes, someone sick and uninsured, leveraging a home to cover the bills, some couple spiraling through divorce, with neither one willing to pay the mortgage on a house neither wanted, gamblers who had overextended themselves and addicts who had finally unraveled. Among them all, the most common were the sick and brokenhearted. Back then, my father says, what you saw the most were x-rays on the floor, medical records here and there, divorce papers. You didn't see so many notices from the bank. Back then, it was a combination of getting into debt and losing a job, getting into debt and going through a divorce, getting into debt and having medical problems, not just getting into debt. By and large, these were hidden tragedies. But as strange and unpleasant as this business was, it was also a way for a real estate agent to stretch out a little, to make a living in a less crowded field. By the mid-90s, agents were as ubiquitous as tourists, with would-be landlords trailing them. One degree separated you, it seemed, from someone else in real estate. And in Florida, as in generations past, real estate embraced all comers. The temptation, of course, was based on housing's reputation as a sound investment. The 5% rule that a home's value increased by about as much every year guided most buyers' expectations, because for the better part of a century, that rule had tr held true. And while the housing market endured booms and busts and bubbles over the decades, the value of a home generally crept ever upward, so that by the end of the century, the long-standing faith in a home as a sound investment was tightly thatched together with the dream it was meant to inspire. Nostalgia and pragmatism, pride and profit, by and large, the dream paid. But by the spring of 2008, when I returned home to work and write about the crisis, the buyers had long since disappeared, and houses by the thousands, both new and old, sat empty, beginning their slow corrosion. The crowds that once camped outside subdivision gates, hoping to snatch a prime lot, had evaporated, and the subdivisions were devouring their own value. Homes built in 2006 had been repossessed within a year and were now selling for half as much as surrounding homes finished just that summer. Some homeowners, exasperated, were simply walking away from their debt, mailing the keys to the bank. Others barricaded themselves in and waited. And the foreclosures kept coming. What had been a rotation of about 15 houses to inspect on my father's list had swelled to 80 and hovered there no matter how many were fixed up and sold again. If Mena couldn't move a foreclosure, it was assigned to another agent or was tossed into one of the massive auctions that blared through town every season like a circus. Of course, champions of the free market, my father among them, argued that the market would, in due time and in typically robust fashion, correct itself. For the rest of us, the question had become, at what cost? What amount of carnage would be required? And while the Treasury weighed its billion-dollar pledges to the institutions that had engineered the biggest economic collapse since the Great Depression, the statistical damage on the ground was giving that comparison some weight. Between the time Florida's housing market began to cool off in 2005 and my arrival there in the spring, the rate of homes being lost had quadrupled to more than 35,000 per month, nearly 5,000 of which were in cities within my father's working radius, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Clearwater. The collapse was surreal in its proportion, biblical in its egalitarian reach, like an economic cleansing fire, which meant that all spring, 
we were flush with work. So I arrive in Tampa, and you can, you can all hear me fine, right? Okay, I don't need to lean any further. I'm good. Uh, I arrive in Tampa, and we begin work. Uh, part of the process is to go buy a home and examine it to see whether it's occupied or not. Uh, if it isn't occupied, uh, my father goes through and photographs it to document the work that lies ahead, to create an estimate of what it might cost to clean and repair that home. We don't waste any time, of course. And this is right after my arrival. Early the next morning, setting out in a bruise-colored light, we lurch for a painfully slow mile behind a school bus blinking to a stop every 20 yards or so, nearly the whole distance to the day's first inspection, a single-story 2-2, two bedrooms, two bath, on Centennial Court, one of dozens of short cul-de-sacs set off a winding main road. It was a dense neighborhood, remarkable only for its anonymity, built in the post-war boom, but whose homes didn't seem to embody the American dream as prescribed. At best, these were starter kits to the dream. Their privacy fences tagged with graffiti, their roofs sprouting satellite dishes, often two at a time, a sign, my father said, that the family inside was Hispanic, since one dish would be for American television, a second for Spanish-language channels. We pulled up to the 2-2, jimmied the front door lock, stepped inside, and took a look around. Dad guessed these owners must have been Hispanic, too, since nearly every square inch of the floor was covered with a white tile, a common, simple cooling system. I doubted it, since tile floors were popular in rentals, a cheap and easy way to clean up after messy tenants. But then, in the corner of the yard, another clue, a makeshift cajachina, a box in which a pig is sealed and slowly roasted under coals piled atop the lid, a fixture of the Cuban and Puerto Rican yard. It was little more than a tub for rainwater now, swarming with ants that had carried off the pig's drippings but still searched for more. The house held strange loot, a pleather couch, a weightlifting set, empty liquor bottles. The garage had been halfway converted into a bedroom with a mattress wedged under a clothes rack. All over were signs of a messy exodus, with half a dozen garbage bags sitting full but untied like the last abandoned task. I dug into the bags. Every single one was crammed with toys, mostly stuffed animals and dolls. Here, Dad said, as he kicked a headlight casing, it's a motorcycle thing. I picked up a motorcycle helmet, looked into its visor a moment, and tossed it aside. In the rest of the junk, a vague story came together. Cindy lived with Robert, but they didn't share a last name. Perhaps she was a stepdaughter or a roommate, because in the back bedroom, under stripes of velour light, Cindy and Chris was stenciled on a wall in black, with a devil's tail whipping underneath. So Cindy, 25, judging by a birthday card, belonged to Chris, but other than that, other than the stenciled dedication, there wasn't a trace of him. Perhaps Robert had something to do with this. Perhaps he was a bit overprotective. It was hard to say. One thing was certain. Someone had a brave taste in booze. The bottles scattered throughout the tiny kitchen, Seagram's, Crown Royal, Hein, Hennessy, Bacardi, Holland Vodka, which comes in this kind of bong-shaped bottle, and Bruegel Rum suggested a slovenly habit of keeping empties or a blowout near the end. The way the padded dining chairs were angled against the windowside table with the bottles knocked over lent some credence to this rager theory in which Cindy and Robert and whoever else, bags full in the next room, their sofa too heavy to carry, the sheriff on his way, drank up their courage, kicked aside a box or two, and headed out into an unpredictable future. 
Between addresses, we made a quick stop at a Cuban panaderia, a ritual of my visits home. We hovered over the cartoonishly bright pastries until called upon, ordered a couple of café con leche, and while waiting, admired the fried stuff. Chicharrón, jamón, croqueta, papa rellena, all bronze and garish and sultry under the heat lamp. Salsa music played softly above us. The doorbell dinged. The small crowd swelled and ebbed with regulars dedicated to this brave motherland diet. The tiny room was thick with the odors of hot oil and coffee and sugar and warm bread. And sure, pork rinds for breakfast might mean fewer days in the long run, but they added a weird vigor to the morning. If anything, the grease is sentimental. We took turn, turns rummaging through the bag on the way to the next house, passing through Odessa's dense stretches of cypress and oak, one of the last rural strongholds this close to Tampa. We were headed for Holiday Park, a good 40 minutes away. The rate of expansion for foreclosures and Mena's willingness to accept them meant that my father's work radius had expanded too. Logging 100 miles a day had become common, leaving plenty of time for window gazing and small talk. We lit on the subject of breaking into a house. My father's preferred method, which he'd used back on Centennial, was to slide a flathead screwdriver between the door and the frame, then leveraging the cylinder out of the lock as he twisted the doorknob with a clamp wrench. You're bending the insides, he said. All you need is about a quarter of an inch. It's got a shaft, and the shaft is connected to the cylinder, so if you pull it back long, you know, enough, well, what did you do before that? You just bang it with a hammer. But that messed up the door. This is much more surgical. And if it fails, you use a drill and open holes in it so you can get to it. Drill directly into the deadbolt. Those things are cheap, the deadbolts. Once you open three or four holes, it falls apart. So it's that easy to break into a house. Oh, yeah, he said. We've never failed to get into a house. There's always a way. Out the window, across acres of cleared land, I could see a subdivision frozen in an early phase of construction. A handful of pastel-colored nouveau Victorian townhouses stood quiet, surrounded by empty, readied lots, then just dirt that faded into the scrub of a cleared field. There was no activity whatsoever near the beginnings of that neighborhood. No earth movers, no foremen, not even a pickup truck darting across the street. Just a ghost town starting at $200 a square foot. Near to us, along the shoulder of the road, the power company was laying lines for the expansion of utilities, the county undeterred in its optimistic vision for growth. If not, my father says, you take the sliding doors and lift them up off the track, and they come out. I didn't get it. Well, typically those doors, people never adjust them, so they settle to a point where there's enough room on top so that you can lift them up higher than the track and pull them out. People use those doors for years without adjusting them. At the bottom, that little wheel can be adjusted up and down. And over time, it wears down. That's all you need. The truck's GPS device guided us to our next job, a house on Anaheim Avenue. But it couldn't tell us where the house was exactly. Three lawns down, we saw it. A pair of white wicker chairs, one crushed, leaning against a trunk of a bedraggled live oak, as if pitched there by a wind. A few feet away, iron patio chairs lay face down like drunks passed out on the lawn. The house was a mid-century ranch, maybe a little more recent, with tall windows stretching between the bushes and the eaves. We got out. The lawn was carpeted with the live oak's brittle mustard-colored leaves, months of untended shedding, if not a year's worth. An elderly couple walked past and stared, and I waved. The breeze picked up. The air was lush. Nimbus clouds sauntered high behind the roof. We walked around to the back of the house, past a futon frame, cradling a pile of branches, toward a picket fence, where we crossed into a small yard. A bird fountain leaned at the fence's edge. A pond opened up behind it. 
with other houses flanking the far bank. My father walked up to the screen door of the sunroom and pressed his face against the glass and humphed. <laughs> I know I can get into this one. Circling back around, we checked the front door, which was locked, and peeked through the tall front windows into the living room. The curtains were missing. In the middle of the living room, on the carpet, sat an electric stove and a wicker shelf for menagerie, toppled on its side. Are you sure this is unoccupied, I said. Mena thinks it is, he said. A small yellow notice taped to the window, stuck there by an agent of Fidelity Information Services, confirmed that the house was vacant. The window screen leaned on the ground, and we figured this must have been how Fidelity's agent had slipped in. I was busy reading the rest of the notice as my father bent down and yanked the window open, the springs cracking. The mortgage holder has the right and duty to protect this property accordingly. It is likely that the mortgage holder will have the property and let the window slam shut behind him. See, Dad said, muted behind the glass. There is always a way. So in touring these homes, I realized that um, I discovered the personalities and the lives of these, uh, of these homeowners who, in, in their disappearance and others who actually turn up, act as my guides through Florida, through, these, through this whole chronicle, through the next couple of years. And, in, and they're all part of what I looked at as an ecosystem of foreclosures in which various individuals compete and cooperate to survive. And that includes not only the homeowners and the trash-out crew, but uh, real estate agents. Um, and, I, and I mention the agents because uh, there's this one agent who helped me analyze the numbers. He was obsessed with the math, the mathematics of these, of these mortgages and how the math suggested all kinds of um, shady dealings. And his name is Joe Coble. Uh, and I've just mentioned Joe because I'm going to refer to him here. So I want you to know who he is. He's a hyperactive guy, he's, and, he's, and he's, a, he's a great poker player, but he's a bit tightly wound uh, and obsessive. Uh, th- and so this scene that includes Joe is one of those auctions that blast through town like a circus. Saturday morning, cool and humid. 150 properties were set to go on the auction block at the convention center in downtown Tampa, the first stop of the Real Estate Disposition Corporation's eight-city tour, during which the listings of about 1,000 homes and condos would be rattled off like livestock to a mostly tepid crowd. For the past month, people had been combing the city with REDC's catalog in hand, nosing through it, following the signs. Some houses were tended to by an agent, some by a neighbor's boy, Whoever had the time to sit there for eight hours while investors and the merely curious walked through and grabbed the paperwork and checked their lists. Most of these were low-priority properties that weary agents couldn't move, them, move themselves or didn't want to. Some were bargains, if the market held steady and the bidder didn't get trigger-happy. Others seemed like money pits. The rest were eyesores. The main hall of the convention center was packed. Joe Coble was there, along with a few of his clients. He looked distracted. My guy forgot his cashier's check, he said. I had to call a buddy of mine and do a bait and switch. The buddy was a man named Jeff, linebacker tall, but with a voice that sounded like some parody of a grandmother from New Jersey. Jeff knew a lot about property, enough that it had become profitable for him, and I couldn't help but admire his type, an industrious fellow who had mastered the complexities of the business and who could tear a wall down, too, and who had a bored swagger about all of it. Even this mind-boggling crisis seemed just barely entertaining to him. Jeff flipped through the book. Is this your house, Joe, on 13th Avenue? No. Oh, this was the one. This is the one that had the little kid who couldn't speak English was at. 
Yeah, Alex, the Russian kid. I paid him to sit my houses for me. His handwriting was phenomenal. It was a democratic scene, almost beautifully egalitarian. Twenty and thirty-something hipsters, middle-aged fathers with earpiece phones, Chinese couples, Indian families, African-Americans, elderly transplants, Hispanics, and the closest thing to celebrity here, the cowboy investors, men who wore their wealth in gleaming pointed boots and glimmering shirts, untucked, each one of them with a pair of sunglasses hovering at the brow, as if it were a trend of moguls. They carried themselves with a very deliberate air of relaxation. Inside the ballroom, the auctioneer's podium was flanked by two giant screens on which rotated the planet Earth, branded with the letters R-E-D-C. The sun hovered in, a, in the galactic distance. The Commodore's brick house thumped from the PA system. Chris Chamberlain, the executive vice president of R-E-D-C, trotted up to the podium to give the crowd a pep talk. You have the perfect storm right now, he said. Remember, folks, this is the perfect buying opportunity. If you look at real estate cycles in the last hundred years in the United States of America, every time we go into a low, which we are in the low part of that cycle right now, that represents a great buying opportunity for you. And remember, that low is not as low as the previous cycle's low. However, over a hundred years, every time the market comes storming back, the next peak has always, I repeat, always exceeded the peak of the last real estate cycle. That's how money's made in real estate, folks. Buy in the low part of the cycle. Was this an opportunity or just a primer for the next disaster? Chamberlain's history lesson worked as revival tent homily, but it ignored what was changing in America's economic condition. It assumed this low part of the cycle was like any other, and it wasn't. Bear Stearns had collapsed, for one thing, aside from the carnage to come, and that collapse suggested an economic phase much more precarious than a lull. It was easy to sense the threat to other institutions that would eventually unravel, a meltdown brewing for September. The low part of the cycle grossly understated how widespread the damage was and how quickly it was spreading. That planet on the big screen seemed appropriate enough. Just a month earlier, 6,000 angry, jeering shareholders had filled a soccer arena in Switzerland after UBS, the Swiss financial juggernaut, wrote down $37 billion in losses from securities propped up by the same sort of real estate that was on auction today. By October, mortgages like those behind the bargains on the screen would bring Iceland to its knees. A spotter for the bids, young and tall and in a rented tux, his head shaved close, bounced on his toes, slapping the rolled-up REDC catalog against his palm. He had an athletic, almost Pentecostal, Pentecostal anxiousness about him, as if waiting for something to burst or for a whistle to blow. When he or the other spotter made eye contact with the audience, they'd nod and make over-friendly, boisterous small talk. I suppose this was their way of getting the crowd loosened up. This is my house here, Coble said, pointing to the catalog. He looked at the opening bid. It isn't worth 50000 the way it sits. That's bullshit. The auction began. Property number one, a condominium in Palm Harbor, worth $150,000 six months ago, opened at $1,000. And the MC rattled through tens of thousands of dollars with shivering speed, reaching $60,000 in less than half a minute. When he reached 70000 he chopped the bidding down to increments of 5000 but didn't slow his patter, so much as repeat the bid until a card went up and a spotter yelped and pointed, then jogged across the room. When the MC hit $80,000, the crowd kept still. The spotters grew restless, waved their hands and flicked their fingers, goading, but no one raised a card. The condo went for $75,000 in just under a minute and 43 seconds to the gentleman there in the middle seat. The crowd applauded. As the spotter led the winner to the stage, it was obvious the man was in a daze, 
shy, not quite confident in his purchase, and certainly not all that comfortable being paraded in front of hundreds of others who might have thought it was a dumb one. Eventually, the man would be led down the hall to financing, and if he qualified, the house would be taken off the list. If he didn't, they'd auction it off again. For an hour or so, the spotters gestured and shouted with a samurai flourish. It was a show, for sure, the gravitas of buying a home perverted into circus. I saw couples making out, children splayed across chairs, bored and restless. Their parents rushed back and forth with cups of coffee from the small coffee station. The spotters struck disco poses and screamed with every card that went up. The bald spotter waited by the woman, one woman for several minutes, as if she had promised him a bid, but was holding back. He bounced and goaded her, and when she nodded, he let himself off his chain with a screech, sold for $385,000. And when a hot property was finally bought, dozens of people headed for the door. It went on like this for hours, through 140 more properties. Out in the main hall again, we gathered to compare notes. Goble was shaking his head at some of the bids he'd witnessed and how auction fever had defeated the bargain the auction had promised in the first place. This one I thought was a joke, Jeff said, pointing to, pointing. Tangerine Street, 55000 it went for. I mean, it's a beautiful brand new home, but you can't get to or from the house without risking your life. This is like the number one drug dealing section in Clearwater. I went to look at it this morning. Couldn't get out of the car. 55000 and I couldn't get out of the car. If you rent it as a Section 8 housing, maybe it'll be a good deal, but you can't go there. They literally tackled my car trying to sell me drugs. The one on Belcher, a stranger piped in. Somebody overpaid for that. That one I liked, Jeff said. It was very clean. New windows, new tile floor, built-in pool. Yeah, but that kitchen. And there's all that mold behind that wall. No, it was a cute little house. All you had to do was a little work for it. What'd it go for? 135000 Jeff tilted his head and cocked a brow. Thank you. Now, and I cut it a little bit short uh, just because I'm assuming there might be questions uh, from you all. Um, or I don't know if, if you have anything. No. You, okay, great. I saw the chairs and I wasn't sure if you wanted to sit in the chairs like, no. like James Lipton and the actors there. Yes, ma'am. When did your experience end? It's still going. I mean, the, well, as far as the book is concerned? Uh, the book ends, the, the book moves for, through two years, so spring of 2008, it moves for about, it goes for about a year, a year and a half, um, and uh, yeah, it, 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 I think a year, a year and a half, but it's still ongoing, in fact, one of the sections that I, I couldn't fit into the book is, is turning out to be a, a piece um, that should be coming out soon, hopefully. So yeah, but it obviously, and that's one of the funny things about trying to sell the book is, Publishers wanted to know, uh, well, you know, is it going to have a happy ending? And in the spring of 2008, I couldn't really supply the answer to that. I didn't really know. Uh, it's, it's sort of silver bullets as to where, what will solve it. No. Uh, I didn't want to, I mean, there's two things I didn't want to do with this book. Uh, one was to stand on either side of the political fence and point fingers at whose fault this was. I wanted to look at the problem holistically. Uh, and I also knew that the way this would be covered in that top-down mode we mentioned earlier would largely ignore the experience of people going through this, whether it was the real estate agents or the people cleaning up these houses or well, especially the foreclosure victims. Uh, so if, if I tackled this book as a, as a kind of prescription to the crisis, uh, it, would, it would have been a, a different book, and I think it would have been tra- been, I would have betrayed my 
uh, literary roots. I mean, it just wouldn't be the type of book I wanted to write. If you wanted to do what my father's doing, huh. Uh, I, first of all, I don't think you would want to do it. It's a dirty job. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, if, if you want to go into... I can, I've got plenty of chapters on, uh, on how dirty it is. I mean, it's the kind of thing where we go in and... It's funny, like I mentioned before, I mean, some houses are clean. Some houses are... You know, we go into some cookie-cutter neighborhoods, these subdivisions that have been built almost instantly. Uh, we'll go in... You know, we went in one week and cleaned out one house that wasn't even finished and then returned uh, the following month. Um, and there was, another, you know, there was another foreclosure right down the street, and they looked exactly alike. And then there was a third and a fourth. But there are also plenty of neighborhoods in which the houses have been left just to rot, and we'd find... The, the refrigerators become legend in this business because they leave food behind. Somehow a snake will find its way in the refrigerator, and these things are just... They're nuclear. I mean, they're... And so... I spent a lot of time sort of retching in the corner of the yard while the rest of the crew cleaned out the house. So you don't, don't get involved. Yeah. For your own good, don't, don't do it. And are you asking if greed had something to do with that? Of course. And that's the fascinating thing about Joe. Um, in the chapter where I introduced Joe, he takes me... It's hard to read because there's a lot of numbers. Uh, and it, it doesn't really work out loud. But Joe takes me through all the p- paperwork and shows me how the loans break down. And you can see by the amounts that they take out uh, at, at which date that they know they're going to default on these things. And he, and he shows how the double closing works, where you close on a house and you can actually uh, sell it. You can sign the deed over before, the, before closing uh, and make a profit. So profits were being made within 24 hours. This thing. And certainly greed had something to do with it. Um, but using that, that metaphor of the perfect economic storm, uh, it's true. I mean, it wasn't, it, you know, if you want to trace it back to the, to the housing policies of, of the 1970s, uh, and you want to tie that in with this idea that uh, housing is part of the American dream. I mean, there's good things that got away from us, and there, there are, there's good motivation behind this, but then other factors participated to, to corrupt that. Um, and everyone drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. So, it, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily the, a Democratic or Republican administration's uh, regulatory policy it wasn't just the banks and the lax lending practices. Um, it wasn't just homeowners realizing that they could borrow against their home to pay off debt or just use their home as, a, as an ATM. It was all of those things. And then it was just the plain stupid, uh, among whom I count myself. Uh, you know, I bought a house in 2006. The worst, I mean, that was, now in hindsight, it's the worst time you could have bought a house. And I refinanced it to pay credit cards because it, was, it made sense. You know, you have a credit card debt that's 25%, uh, and you refinance your house with a home equity loan at 4%. Well, what do you, you know, do the math. I mean, that makes perfect sense to do that. But none of us knew that the market was going to tank. And I, I took the bait. I bought that home thinking that I wanted, uh, it, was a, it was a right of adulthood. Uh, it meant I was participating in society. So maybe I shouldn't have, uh, maybe I, my debt to income ratio wasn't, it didn't support being a homeowner. But I went ahead and, and went for it. So there is that percentage. There's people who just took a chance on this thing and just got in over their heads by accident. So, so I don't think it's just greed. Growth became the industry in Florida. And there was nothing... In other words, growth wasn't serving another industry. It was the industry itself. So once that stopped... And this is why you have, what, upwards of 12 or 15% unemployment there now because most of the people, they were there to, to just build. And not for any reason. The reason in and of itself was just building. 
Um, what happens to the houses that don't sell? The ones that nobody... They just sit there and... They just sit there. They just sit there? And, and who owns them? Uh, well, either the developer, in which case they'll just... You know, somebody's going to go bankrupt on that house. So eventually the bank is going to own it. Uh, and, you know, if I were to sit here... And in fact, part of what I'm doing now, having finished this book, is offering solutions to the crisis. I mean, and I, you know, from the perspective that no one has that silver bullet. But for instance, one of the things I would suggest is if we do have these properties that are sitting there that are part of this excess inventory, uh, handing them over, selling them at a discount to nonprofits that can use those houses for low-income housing is one thing. Uh, depending on where they are. I mean, if you have houses way out in the suburbs, it's a little more difficult because you're, the costs you incur to do that is, is different than if it was in the middle of the city, if it was an urban property. But eventually, if the developer doesn't sell that house uh, and a homeowner doesn't sell it, it's going to belong to the bank. And if it doesn't belong to the bank, then it's just going to sit there. And it'll belong to whoever breaks in and squats it. Are you living in Florida now? Yes. Um, what's the story about the other uh, places around uh, restaurants and so on uh, for these communities, have they also gone bust? Oh, certainly. I mean, and if you're going to talk about a next wave, and I don't really like, I don't really like doing that because it, it sort of sends shock waves uh, and fear and paranoia through the market. <laughs> But yeah, if you were to, if there is a next wave, then it's going to be commercial property for sure. Because and and that we are seeing signs of that. I mean, there are the numbers are supporting that the commercial tenants. There's no reason for them to keep paying, and so they're just breaking their leases and walking away. Are there any signs of hope that things might improve? Sure. In time. In time, yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, I don't think this is the end time. Uh, and, and one of the things that I look at in this book is how people improvise and how they survive. Uh, you know, the first foreclosure, of all the hundreds of foreclosures that I trashed out uh, bef before even writing this book, um, I'd never met anybody, any of the victims. But I did meet one victim, uh, and his, he was a deacon. Uh, he went to prison and found God in prison and became a deacon of his church. And uh, so he was born again and he had lost his home, we cleaned it out, and I met him, and I explained all this to him. And I asked him about uh, whether he thought he had made a mistake and whether he would buy a home again. He said, without hesitating, he said, of course I would. I mean, without a doubt. He was, not, he was undeterred in his desire for home ownership. Um, that has partly to do with his faith and his, his strength of spirit, I suppose. Um, but he wanted to own a home, and nothing was going to... I mean, certainly plenty of things were going to stop him because his credit had been ruined. But it, the desire was still there. And so you have people like that, and you have people like um, Max Rameau in Miami, which is a, another chapter in this book uh, dedicated to his causes, uh, one of which is called Take Back the Land, where they take these empty houses that are sitting there, especially in these struggling neighborhoods, that the banks don't even want, that the banks don't even think they could sell for profit, so that they're just deteriorating the value of these neighborhoods. And he usurps the houses on behalf of homeless families, breaks in and moves these homeless families in there so that they have an opportunity without having to pay rent or mortgage, but paying for power and water uh, to get back on their feet and to, and to get their lives back. And these are usually tenants that have been in foreclosure, that have been in, you know, paying their rent on time, but the landlord 
hasn't been paying the bank, just collecting the cash. And so, and usually, um, Max's clients are, clients are single mothers. Uh, and what they do is they move them into the house. Uh, they, they squat that house for several months until the family can get back on their feet. And at the same time, they notify the police, the bank, the real estate agent, whoever they can, in order for the police to come. And, and, and they notify the media, too. So that there is this showdown on the front lawn. And that's, I got lucky enough to catch them during their, their biggest showdown. Michael Moore was there with his camera crew filming for that capitalism movie. So it was a real big circus. But it was part of the mission to draw attention to this issue. Because they believe that everyone, regardless of their circumstance, regardless of their background, deserves a home. And that the surplus of all these empty homes, and there's something like 7 million of them across the country, Shadow for, they call it the shadow inventory, which is homes that the bank doesn't even want, are just sitting there empty. So if there's 7 million foreclosures across the country and several million homeless families, there's got to be some way of trying to solve both problems at once, and this was what they did. So it's stories like that, it's stories like the Deacons that I think speak to improvisation and resilience and people working on a grassroots level to help themselves instead of waiting for the federal government to help them or for banks to decide that they want to be charitable. This affect um, a more expensive housing too. It appears that it would. Well, the, the big. I mean, where, where is this we, affecting expensive houses? Well, the, the apartment buildings. You know, where we were, we were in Sunny Isles Beach, which was up North Miami Beach, and they were building apartment building after apartment building, ex- uh, expensive apartments. Sure. And I don't know what happened there. Well, they, they went belly up. They did. One of the fascinating things about this was um, looking at Miami between 2007 and 2009. And I, I remember all those T-cranes. You counted like 16 T-cranes along the waterfront in Miami. And you wondered, because the news was already bad. And you thought, to, I mean, you couldn't help but wonder who, who was going to buy those units, who was going to move in there. Uh, and it turned out nobody. Uh, they finished the buildings, uh, and they finished all those towers, and they sat empty. And it was a fascinating thing to see at night, because you had all these condominium towers that were dark. Uh, you know, every now and then they'd come in and try and turn on the lights just to pretend that somebody was there. But, and these were extravagant grand openings. I mean, there's this one place called the Everglades. They brought in alligators and panthers, and they had million-dollar parties to celebrate these condos. Uh, and they all went, they all went belly up. It, yeah, it affects all, I mean, it isn't just $30,000, $50,000, $100,000 houses. These are million-dollar properties, too. Well, that's, that's the biggest problem that they face. The banks, in the year I was there, the struggle was to try and, and this is the interesting thing about Max. I call him one of the most honest revolutionaries of the crisis because he knew his limitations and he knew what he wanted to do. He didn't want to, this quickly became a political issue. But he didn't want to be a politician. He really liked going on, going onto that lawn and chaining himself to the house and having the police try and drag him away. And, and in fact, what they're doing now is working; they're moving into foreclosure prevention uh, because politically, it's a lot easier to protect someone's home than to invade a home that someone else owned. And because then you get into this question, which is an important question, uh, of what's more important: property rights or compassion, basically. Uh, you wouldn't work through Max in Baltimore. I mean, you have a house down there? Ohio. Uh, you wouldn't work through Max because they're focused on Miami. 
Uh, and that's one of the things that he does. He focuses on the neighborhoods that need him. And it's just too logistically difficult. And one thing you could do, and again, this was part of the effort with Max, was to negotiate with the banks to try and turn over these foreclosures to nonprofit organizations. And there are dozens per city that work to supply housing for people who need it. Um, because it isn't a foreclosure, you may have, I mean, this is actually a unique circumstance. I, we never came across it before, but you may have more options. It isn't the banks to decide whether they want to just sit on it or not. Um, you basically want someone to take over the payments. And it could be that uh, the, the nonprofit would be able to do that for you. Uh, you know, I, the best thing I can recommend is to, you know what you would do? Ohio? What district? Dayton. I don't know if that's Marcy Captor's uh, turf, uh, but she was one of the, con- she was a, a congressman who uh, became one of the heroes of the crisis because she told people to squat their foreclosures. She said, squat your own home and don't let the bank force you out. Because often when people receive these foreclosure notices, they, they come in threes. And oftentimes when uh, the first one arrives, a family leaves because they're scared. Uh, and as we know now, in many cases, because the mortgages were spliced and split up and divided among various investors, there's no proof as to who, who owns that house. So if City Mortgage is sending you a foreclosure notice, they don't necessarily have the right to kick you out. Uh, and so she was encouraging people to stay in their homes until the sheriffs arrive. So you, you have, what I'm, I guess this is a long way of saying, you have congresspeople in, in those districts that will be willing, uh, more than willing, to work for you, um, to put that house to good use. Uh, the, these houses where people walk away and they just put the keys to the bank or what have you, were many of these people had other assets when they walked away that you could figure out? And if so, um, did they, they would end up having to pay, you know, from, the, uh, um, from being sued. So um, what kind of cases like that have you ran into? Well, dozens. Uh, it remains to be seen uh, whether they're going to get away with it. What, they, what you're talking about is strategic default, I think. Well, I'm sorry, strategic again. default, where a homeowner has done the math. The banks aren't cooperating with them. The value of there's no – it would take 20 years, maybe, for them to realize um, the, the value that has been lost in that home. So they're just walking away. And because the banks are so overwhelmed with the inventory of these houses, they don't have the means or or the inclination to pursue what's called the deficiency judgment. And that's going after you for the remainder of what you owe. Uh, It depends on where you live. If if you're going to do that, if you're going to walk away from your house, then move to Texas. Uh, Because Texas is is the best place to be to declare bankruptcy. You get to save everything. Uh, it's just it's state by state Florida's you know you can protect your home uh, with a homestead uh, act with a homestead law but that's about it Uh, so and if there is another problem that's going to sneak up on us it's that the banks because of the window of opportunity that they have to do this um, will start to pursue those deficiency judgments within let's say five years after the economy has begun to recover and that'll be a big problem um, because then you'll have people who are back on their feet uh, and all of a sudden the creditors will start knocking on the door and, well, at least ringing the phone off the hook, that sort of thing. Yes, sir. Where do you live? 
I live in Miami. Miami. If uh, I'm, I'm thinking of retiring in another year or so, and looking for maybe uh, you know, buy a vacation home, where, where would you suggest uh, uh, a place? The secret is in this book. So, <laughs> so you're going to have to buy the book to find out. But I will say that Miami's a pretty good... I'm not going to say exactly where. The address where you should move is in this book. The neighborhood we should... No. You know, yeah, I mean, where would I suggest you live? Uh, actually, the good thing is that uh, population is increasing again. And, you know, I think it was last year, uh, we had, Florida had a decrease in population for the first time in 60 years. So that was big news. But now it's increasing. People are realizing there are bargains. Um, you know, I think there's a number. If you like water, I'm assuming you do, uh, Miami's a great place. Uh, you know, Lehigh Acres, that's where, that's where my family has some property. Uh, though it's just a scrubby little useless lot. In fact, we'll sell you. Yeah, I got, a lot, I got a piece of land for you now that I think about it. <laughs> if there's a, and there's a chapter in this book that's devoted to this. My parents, uh, you know, and I would have read more, but I, I kind of like this, the, the, the question and answer thing, because I learn a lot from it, and I think it's much more entertaining than to have an author sit here and go on and on. Uh, but there is a chapter in here about that, about the idea of the, the sunshine, the land of sunshine and the paradise that was advertised to everyone outside of Florida. And it turns out my, my parents were one of those suckers who bought land as part of those land schemes in 1969. Um, and it, it sat there for 40 years. And the, the chapter was motivated by this one afternoon. It was, in fact, it was right after President Obama's speech in Fort Myers. And he made that speech in Fort Myers because Lee County had become ground zero of foreclosures. And I was reading the headlines, and it says, oh, you know, Lehigh Acres and Lee County is, uh, is the ground zero of foreclosures. And he says to me, well, you know we have property there. And I, I didn't know anything about it. So he proceeds, he goes into his office, and he comes out with this manila folder. And in the folder is not only the deed to this 50 by 150 lot, 50 foot lot, but every letter... And every postcard that was sent to him over 40 years, well, since 1969, uh, from brokers, land brokers, real estate agents, uh, brokers posing as like an elderly retiring couple, uh, asking him to buy that lot. And you could trace the boom. And in fact, you could trace several booms by looking at these postcards and looking at these letters and tracing the value of that scrubby piece of land. It's worth nothing. I went and visited it which was the, the, the narrative part of that chapter. And it went up, I think, by two, th- you know, they bought it for $8,000. By the front page? People? By the what? By the front page? Like- oh, no, no. Well, yeah, by the post, yeah. So they're sending it in August 2005, August 1999, that sort of thing. And by 2000, 2005, 2006, they were offering him $40,000 for that land. Uh, not, I mean, it isn't even a waterfront. They, they advertised that it would be, in, back in 69, they said, it, they had, you know, they, they faked these, these plans for this neighborhood, Lehigh Acres. And they said, these canals will take you to the Gulf of Mexico on your leisurely excursion. Well, it's just a ditch at this point. Basically, what they were doing is they were draining the land. The canals go nowhere. Uh, and so maybe technically it's waterfront, uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it that. But $40,000 for that thing, and that means that these guys could in turn sell it for $20,000 more. Uh, and of course, that fell apart in 2007. But I was able to track down the guys who came up with that scheme. They're still alive. And they, and they told me all the little tricks they had about how to lure people to Lehigh Acres and sucker them into buying these lots. Um, Does your dad still own it? 
We still own Like I said, we still own it, so it's yours for 20000 <laughs> It's the perfect time to buy a condominium. I will say that. The, the, market, the market is improving, and what you're seeing now is a phenomenon that um, now that, in, in fact, one of the fellows I, talk, I write about and I'm currently writing about is a fellow named Peter Zalewski, and he has a company called Condo Vultures. And what they do is act as the go-between uh, between investors and foreclosures. So a developer, and what they, I mean, they literally seize upon these towers one tower at a time. I mean, they sell condos 300 at a time to these guys who have the money to, to buy them. So the condo market is fine because these investors realize there's a huge buying opportunity for renters and buyers and so on and so forth. The problem is, uh, if you're looking at it from an economic perspective, these are mostly foreign buyers. So in a way, the crisis, like many economic crises, has provided an opportunity not only for the rich to get richer, uh, but for this money and this capital to leave this country. And then you have these people that are amassing great, tremendous resources in buying up these properties. Uh, and they're coming from Italy. and Mostly they're coming from South America. Uh, but all of that is to say that the condos are fine. You know, they, they, they're not ghost buildings. Let, let, me, let me get to Somebody else has a question back there. Yeah, going back to the worthless lot at Lehigh Acres. Um, Sold for 25 <laughs> No? Yeah, well, you don't. And it's funny when we met the guy. We met the we met this guy who who organized the sales pitch, and they would you know they had all these things where they would all these different schemes. They'd um, you know they'd advertise it as a historical tour of Central Florida, and they'd fly people in, and they'd wine them, dine them, and if you bought a lot, you'd get to spend the night in the in the mat, you know in this hotel next to the um, sales office. And uh, you get free sangria at the Matador room, you know, that sort of thing. And he had wonderful stories, all of which are in this book, uh, about the techniques that they used. Listening in, they'd bug the room. Uh, you know, the agent would leave the room, giving my parents some time to think about it. And they'd listen in. And so if a couple said, for instance, I don't know, honey, I think we need to pray on this one. This is a big, this is a big decision. They'd listen in, and the agent would come back in. He'd say, you know what I like to do, folks? When I have a big decision like this, I just like to ask God for guidance. So if you don't mind, I'd like to, if we could just pray. And he'd get them like that. And so, uh, I, I, I actually forget where this is going, but this fella, <laughs> no, he, he explained all the means by which they, uh, they did this. And um, the funny thing is, is about this lot, it, it, it will be a town someday. Uh, this fella named Rick Anglicus you know, what happened was they intended to sell the land and just sell the land. It was a total Glengarry, Glen Ross scheme. Um, but eventually they realized once people started moving there, they thought, oh, hell, we've got to start building infrastructure. And then they were committed to building a town. And so he has become one of the godfathers of this small Florida town, you know, wanting to build the Boy Scouts, wanting to build a rec center, that sort of thing. So there are plans for it. I mean, they intend to do something with it. Um, but they learned that a, a bit late, and they've been playing this, this tragic uh, game of catch-up since then. So. Thank you very much. Thank you.